So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than... We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Epic Executive Director Sam Ori. In an era of divided government, there's been concern over Congress's ability to reach compromise and pass legislation. With Democrats in the majority in the House of Representatives and Republicans in control of the Senate and the White House, progress has certainly been limited. Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican representing Alaska, is one of only five women Republican senators and is considered by many to be a key leader for forging compromise in this environment. Senator Murkowski has time and again made headlines for key votes on everything from health care to climate policy. As chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Murkowski sits at the forefront of crucial decisions around the future of energy and environmental policy in the United States on issues ranging from the Green New Deal to oil and gas development on federal lands. Her work on a range of other areas offers a unique perspective on a wealth of key issues that will frame the debates in 2020. Recently, EPIC and BFI Director Michael Greenstone sat down with Senator Murkowski for a broad conversation on a range of political and economic policy issues. Let's hear what she had to say. Good morning. Um, on the uh, behalf of the Becker Friedman Institute and the Energy Policy Institute of Chicago, known on campus as the BFI and the EPIC, Thanks, uh, thank you all for joining us today for a conversation on issues facing the U.S. economy and the environment with United States Senator Lisa Murkowski. My name is Ted Brandt, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Marathon Capital and a Becker Friedman Institute Advisory Council member. BFI is a collaborative platform for the vast and diverse University of Chicago economics community with almost 300 PhD economists working on campus and even more scholars engaged in research relating to the economy. Um, having an institute that can bring our scholars together around common research topics allows us to coordinate and leverage our work in a way that can have real impact. My firm is a Chicago investment bank, um, which we believe is the largest bank in the U.S., focused on renewable power and uh, fuel markets. Most of you will know that the U.S. has spent much of the last 15 years displacing older nuclear, coal, and gas power plants with hyper-efficient new natural gas generation and new onshore wind and solar plants. The U.S. is clearly transitioning towards a much cleaner and greener future. What's not well understood, however, is that even with all that investment over the last 15 years of the more than $4 trillion kilowatts uh, hours of uh, electricity used in 2008, just last year, only 17% of the U.S. generation came from renewables. If one includes hydropower, um, I'm including hydropower as part of renewables. If you exclude hydropower, given that there's an awful lot of environmentalists um, that don't like hydropower, uh, only about 10% comes from uh, uh, renewable. The zero coupon uh, nuclear fleet 
uh, makes up another 20% of that generation. So last year, 63% of all power generation utilized fossil fuel, um, uh, with gas at about 35% of that, and uh, uh, coal down to about 25%. I'm an environmentalist and accept that human activity has had an effect on our climate, but I'm also a, renew a renewable energy expert and believe it's simply infeasible to shift away from the use of fossil fuels, especially natural gas, from almost, um, which is almost free um, for at least a decade um, and maybe a little bit longer than that. So I'm keenly interested in listening to our speaker today, who is the chairwoman of the U.S. Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee, must balance the various environmental concerns and proposals against the reality of fueling um, um, a fueling, transitioning, uh, a growing uh, uh, $22 trillion economy. I'm truly honored to introduce our guest today, Lisa Murkowski, Alaska's senior U.S. Senator. It's a third generation Alaskan, born in Ketchikan. Uh, 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 Murkowski joined the U.S. Senate in 2002. She is considered by many to be a key leader for forging compromise and has time and time again made headlines for key votes on everything from health care to climate policy. As chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Senator Murkowski sits at the forefront of crucial decisions on the future of energy and environmental policy in the United States, including the Green New Deal and energy developments on federal lands and waters. She has been an important voice in the Republican Party for recognizing the risks posed by climate change and for advancing, uh, advancing uh, climate policies, most notably federal investments in clean energy R&D. Her work on these and a range of other issues offers a unique perspective on several points that will frame political debates as we enter the 2020 elections. Senator Murkowski also serves on the Senate Appropriations Committee, where she is the Chairman of the Interior and Environmental Subcommittee. She is a member of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, the first Alaskan to serve on that panel, and is also a senior member of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. Prior to her appointment uh, to the United States Senate, Senator Murkowski practiced commercial law in Anchorage and served three terms in the Alaska State of House of Representatives, including time as the House Majority Leader. We are delighted to have Senator Murkowski with us this morning. Um, and joining Senator Murkowski is our very own Michael Greenstone. Um, Michael's the Meet Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics, the college and the Harris School, and the director of the Energy Policy Institute of Chicago uh, and the director of the Becker Friedman Institute. He previously served as the chief economist for the White House Council of uh, Economic Advisors, where he co-led the development of the United States uh, government's social cost of carbon. He was the $40 man. Um, um, Michael's research, which has influenced uh, policy globally, is largely focused on uh, uncovering the benefits and costs of environmental policy and society's energy choices. His current works focuses on testing innovative ways to increase energy access, monetizing damages from climate change, and improving the efficiency of environmental regulations around the world. With introductions out of uh, the way, it's my sincere pleasure to turn the program over to Michael and Senator Murkowski. Thanks very much, Ted, and welcome, Senator Murkowski, to the University of Chicago. We're Thank happy you. to have you. Great to be with you. Beautiful day. Uh, so we got a lot of students here. When you were a student, did you ever think you'd be sitting here, or maybe more importantly, in the U.S. Senate? And no. how did you get here? No, and the fact that, uh, that we're here 
um, in, in these, I'd call them chambers or whatever, uh, focusing on economics. You know, I was an economics major by default, uh, just to give you some clue as to my personality. What was I, your first choice? It, my first choice, I was going to be a teacher. Oh. And I was at, I was a sophomore um, at Willamette University in, in Oregon and had to take a mandatory econ course. Halfway through the semester, the professor calls me and says, Lisa, you should drop my class or you're going to get a failing grade and it's just not, not going to look good on your record. And I was so offended that he had so little confidence in me and my abilities that I not only stayed in his class, but I changed my major from education to econ just to spite him. <laughs> I actually ran into him last year. He, uh, he's retired, but he had come out to a, a speech that I was giving at Willamette. And he says, do you remember me? I'm Russ Beaton. And I said, do you realize how you changed my life? <laughs> so uh, it, it's one of those where it wasn't my love for economics. It was, by gosh, if you don't believe it, that I'm capable of this. So you got another thing coming, dude. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, it seems like that characterizes many aspects of your life. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and how did, what was, how did it go from college to politics? So I, I had always been one who was involved and engaged in, whether it was my high school or in, in college, in not necessarily student government, but just involved in, in matters. And I was... Uh, I was a young lawyer practicing law, a couple kids, a uh, really pretty good life. Um, and our, uh, our representative who had been in office for 14 years announced that he was going to retire. And so I was tapped to go around and recruit a candidate. And it was one of those situations where you would call the obvious people and they say, I can't. Why don't you do it? And I say, I can't. I'm, I'm got a nice practice, I've got a good situation with my husband and my two kids, and of course I can. Anyway, long story short, uh, they talked me into it, even though it was my job to talk somebody else into it, I failed there, and got involved in the state legislature and uh, served there for a period of time. And then I, uh, I came to the United States Senate in a very unorthodox and um, difficult way, if there's any way to get there, um, the way to do it is not through nepotism. I actually use the word because it was my father who had been in office for 22 years, was successful in his election to, uh, to serve as governor and under Alaska's laws at that time, the governor was able to appoint to a vacancy. Um, he, he decided that I was uh, the one that he wanted to select and um, against my better judgment, um, I accepted for that interim and then went on to stand for three subsequent elections and have been returned now. I've been in the Senate for 17 hmm. years. So just so you know, my grandmother was on the faculty here and my dad was on the faculty. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you make me feel better already. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> and we're in the city of Chicago. <laughs> um, there's many aspects of your electoral career that are totally fascinating. One that just sticks out is a 2010 when you were running for re-election. I wonder if you could talk about that. And I wonder actually if there were shadows of that in your debates with your economics professor. <laughs> it could have been. So 2010, um, I was uh, I was up 
uh, for election. This would have been my, my second full election. Those um, are pretty volatile electoral period in the country. In it was. It yeah. was. This was just as the Tea Party was really gaining currency. Um, but in Alaska, it, 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 it really hadn't risen to a level that we felt there should be some concern. I had very strong uh, approval ratings um, around the state. I had raised um, the money that we needed to do to have a, a strong campaign. But uh, there was a Tea Party candidate who, who ran. And uh, suffice to say, I had not been viewed as, quote, the good Republican in terms of, of following the party line on, on some initiatives. And so he was able to generate a, a strong showing on the conservative side. And a host of other um, factors influenced that, that primary election. Uh, Senator Stevens, uh, who was my mentor, uh, was killed in an airplane accident uh, 10 days before the primary, so I suspended my, suspended my race um, until after the services for the family, um, a decision that I would make all over again out of respect for my friend. But as a consequence of many things, I lost a primary, a uh, primary where 14% of Alaskans came out to, to vote. And uh, you know, when you lose a primary, you're done, basically. And I was prepared. Okay, so can we pause for one yes. second? So that's defeat. We have yeah. lots of students here. Yeah. Probably, uh, if they're here, they've known zero defeat so far in their life. Uh, <laughs> but a lot is coming for most of them. Life doesn't come without its series of defeats. And it's just a question of how big, how small. Um, and in, in fairness, losing an election is not the end of the world. You have, most of us have plenty more that we can offer. But uh, I, was, I was prepared to, to come back to Alaska, get a season ski pass, and have a happy existence. So uh, let me interrupt in one more time. The place that I live. So with our children, one thing when something bad happens, uh, I try to get them to chant, uh, what do you do when something goes wrong? But we'll quit and never try again. Now, obviously, I want them to take the opposite message. <laughs> Quit and never try again. That was not, that yeah, was so not my That doesn't seem like that mindset. was your MO. Yeah. That was not my mindset. So what happened? You didn't listen to my children? I didn't listen to your children. What I did is I listened to Alaskans. And mm. what happened was a, was a, a, a truly a, a, a from the ground up effort to say, wait a minute. We want a redo with this primary election. Now, there's not too many times that you can do a redo. But there were so many Alaskans who said, in this closed primary system, I didn't have an opportunity to vote for you. I didn't have an opportunity to weigh in. I don't like this. And I was reminded by an old timer who was one of the ones who was pushing me very, 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 very much to, to put my name out there. He said, he says, you know, the question was not, should you, should you run as a write-in? He said, we were going to write you in anyway. The question was whether or not you would serve if you won. And I said, well, yes, if, if you return me, I will serve. But you need to understand, this is not possible. It hasn't been done since 1954 with Strom Thurmond. And oh, by the way, my last name is Murkowski. <laughs> it's nine letters long. Many of my constituents, Alaska Native peoples, 
English is not their first language. How do you teach somebody how to participate in a write-in? Because when you go to the when you go to the ballot box and you get that that ballot, here's Joe Miller, here's Scott McAdams, and here's a line with just an oval. And if you spelled my name correctly, which was what you were going to have to do, but you failed to fill in the oval, it didn't count. So we had to do not only a campaign that involved why do you like Lisa representing you in the Senate, but how do you complete a ballot? Now, is so it we true had, that jewelry played a part of it? So we, we had the cheesy little rubber wristbands. The Livestrong. The Livestrong bands. Yeah, except the Murkowski. So what we did with ours, we had the little little bubble and then the correct spelling, Lisa Murkowski, and then fill it in, write it in, because you had to fill it in and write it in. And so we put these on the wristbands. My husband took one of those wristbands, he had it made into gold, and it's the one piece of jewelry that I never <laughs> leave home without it. Um, part, of, part of it, simply because it's a reminder to me as to how I was returned. I was returned to the United States Senate by Alaskans who said, we don't want our representation to be defined by a party. We want our representation to be that individual that we believe can best represent us. And so it was a very odd place. Um, my, my colleagues in the Senate were in kind of a tough place because there was a Republican on the ballot and then there was a blank line. And if they're going to support the Republican Party, where do they go? With somebody that has worked with them for 14 years? Um, or do they stand with their party? It was, it was a very difficult time. Now, can um, I do something very But very empowering for Alaskans. Yes. And I looked up a quote that yes. you said. Okay. What did I say? Uh, because the Republican committee, I think, supported the person who won the primary. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I've basically been written off by the senatorial committee, and I'm not going back begging and pleading. My relationships will either stand on their own or not. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I wonder if we could pivot off of that to you have a almost unique role in the Senate these days on a wide variety of issues, and I wonder if it's connected at all to that period. Well, my colleagues will either support me or not, and, and, and they have. Um, I'm chairman of the, of the Energy Committee. Uh, I was a ranking member for six years, and I've now been chairman for five. Um, so I didn't le lose that leadership uh, status, my ranking. Um, I'm, I'm on the Interior Appropriations Committee as the chairman of that uh, significant committee. I didn't lose my, my standing there. And uh, I have... I, I guess I've developed a, a reputation in, in the Senate for being one that uh, is, will question, um, will not necessarily just line up with the party because everybody is lining up with the party. If it's the right thing for the state of Alaska, I'll, I'll be there. But if it is not, don't, don't count on me to be there just because this is a party line position. That, that gives some of my colleagues some, some heartburn, but I think what they have learned, that's a polite way, um, 
I think what they have learned is that I, I truly am a very Alaska first lawmaker. And I am unabashed with that. Um, the, the Affordable Care Act several years ago, um, there, was, there were a lot of different reasons uh, behind, behind the debates and where I was on that. But coming from a very rural state with very high healthcare costs and very little overall access, everything that my party was putting out there that would have, that was an option to vote on, didn't work in my state. And so for me, it was not political. It was, I can't go home and tell people that it's going to cost you more and you're going to have less access. And so there, I, I think you build respect when the decisions that you make on a policy basis are because you're driven by the desire to do what's right for the people that sent you there in the first place. And, and I can sleep well at night knowing I've done that. Um, can we delve a little bit deeper into the healthcare? Sure. Uh, so you've played a central role in that. Uh, I wonder if you could go back in time, 2019, Senator Murkowski to 2009, and there was a debate about Ob Obamacare in the Senate, mm -hmm. what would you say that the future was gonna tell us? Oh. You know, given where we were in that debate back in 09, and the fact that this was significant major policy in an area that impacts every American, Rural and urban and young and old, everybody is impacted by healthcare and healthcare policy. And knowing that we advance that strictly along party lines, you had to know that the divisions would continue. You had to know that there, there would have to be that point where we were going to have to come together. We have not done that yet. Um, in fairness, um, I'm on the help committee as well, and, and I, I think that we're, we're starting to make some incremental headway in healthcare policy in reducing the overall cost of care, not what the ACA took us towards, which was how do we, how do we ensure that there is coverage that is available for the care. And so, we're making some headway, but in fairness, the, the, the political headwinds are out there. Every time you try to make headway with reducing the cost of prescription drugs, you know, you get the pharmaceutical companies that come in. Um, when, you, when you try to uh, make some headway with, uh, with transparency and costs, well, then you've got some concerns coming up from, from your, your hospitals and from your from your providers. So there's still a lot of political headwinds, but focusing on the cost of care itself, because you think about it, if you can get the cost of the product down, then maybe the cost to cover the product isn't as much. Mm -hmm. So we're working on that, but we still have far, far too far And so to go. was the Obamacare adventure a good one in hindsight? Huh. <laughs> Is it a good one? I'm glad you didn't use the word fun, because fun is a relative <laughs> term. It was an adventure. Um, 
I do think that. Uh, and I believe many more Alaskans have health insurance through Medicaid now and. Medicaid expansion, yeah, in fairness. Which was part of it, yeah. Significantly, significantly um, benefited us, and particularly as we are seeing um, the same issues that you are here in the lower 48 uh, with regards to to uh, levels of addiction, behavioral health needs. If we had not had Medicaid expansion, mm. I don't know where mm. we would be mm. right now. Um, and so for us, again, when you think about those, those things that we have done as, as, a, as a consequence of the Affordable Care Act, making sure that those with pre-existing conditions are, are taken care of, um, some of the things that we have put in place, I think we look back at and say, that was good that was strong, that was important. And, and sometimes that's difficult for some of my colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle to acknowledge that anything good could have come from the ACA because they're just so, so strongly and vehemently against it as, as an initiative. But I think you have to look to what, what good has come out of it. If you spend all of your day thinking about how awful it is and how much I, I just so hated it, how productive is yeah. that? Why can't we build off the things that we agree were good, keep those, and then address the other areas where we need, yeah. where we need to be fixing it? So you said something else a minute ago that I thought was fascinating. And I think people have different views on this. Uh, you said, well, part of the problem was that it was only passed by one party. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem? or? Yeah. And uh, I wonder yep. if you could talk about that, particularly because a lot of your reputation and history yep. lies in trying to find bipartisan agreement on things. If these and, are, and so is the bill tainted? It becomes law, and now it's you know suffusing through the economy. Is that so bad? It's not that it's so bad. It's just that there there will be those that again will will be unwilling to acknowledge that there was anything good that mm -hmm. came of it. So how do you build off of it? So. Particularly um, big initiatives, in my view, must have bipartisan support in order to be enduring. And whether it is in the healthcare space, whether it is immigration, uh, whether it is energy, in order for it to be enduring, you've got to have input from both sides. You've got to have buy-in from all corners of the country. Otherwise, you just set yourself up to be at loggerheads going forward. And that's not productive. So I have, I have taken an approach to legislating that says, I want a process that is going to be open and transparent. So even if you don't like the outcome, even if you, if you voted against it, you can't complain about how we got there. But I go out of my way to make sure that we can get bipartisan support for energy measures. In our interior appropriations bill, we moved that bill. And this is, this is an appropriations that has oversight of everything from the National Park Service to the BIA, to the Indian Health Service, to the EPA. So you can, you can bet that you've got a host of differing views on it. We moved it out of the appropriations committee 33 to 0 
with no amendments. Mm -hmm. And it was not because I took all of my good ideas and I said, I hope you all agree with them. It was because we said, well, you know what? On this one, we're just not going to be able to get the support. So can you work with us and stand down and we'll, we'll work on it in another way? Last, uh, this uh, February, I guess it was. No, it, it was early February. It was in the middle of the government shutdown, 35-day longest government shutdown ever when everybody in America thinks that Washington, D.C. is in such a state of dysfunction that they can't do anything. What did the Energy Committee do? We passed out a, a package of land and water conservation bills, probably the most significant conservation, land conservation package that we have seen in 10 years. We passed it out of the Senate during a government shutdown we passed it out 85 to 12. 85 to 12. And then we moved it over to the House. And as I've said, the House gets up in the morning to spit in the Senate's coffee. <laughs> they, they advanced it. But you guys don't drink it, right? <laughs> we just look critically. <laughs> but they passed it out 366 to 63 or something hmm. like that. But it was because of the process that we had built. And it was, it's, it's consensus-based. And whether it is Maria Cantwell coming from the state of Washington working with me on these issues where we, we say, all right, you're not going to agree with me on this 10%, and I'm not going to agree with you on this 10%, but there's 80% in the middle that we as a committee can work on. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And that's the approach that we have taken. OK. so. Let, bear with me here. It's like okay. going to be an incoherent question. All but, right, I'm uh, ready. Or maybe not my first, but another one, I should say. Uh, so there's a couple things I want to pick up on and then try to put them together into one big pot. Uh, the first is if you just go across uh, the little walkway that you walked over to here, there's like a bazillion great ideas uh, sitting yeah. inside the economics department. Uh, you only have to ask anyone in the economics department and they'll give you all bazillion. Uh, <laughs> and it seems like uh, those ideas don't go right into legislation all the time. Uh, so, Fair enough. Okay. So that's like a little sad uh, <laughs> for us. Yeah. So what about that on the one hand? And two, uh, this, you know, then the way, as you just described, the way you've run the committee, uh, looking for bipartisan uh, solutions. So now the third factor I want to put in this is climate change. So one of, I, I actually think most economists would think it's such a simple and boring problem. Uh, we should just put a price on carbon and yeah. we should fund R&D. Yeah. Uh, so that's, one of, that's only one of the one bazillion ideas. Uh, super easy, should be done right away. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm going to put the bipartisan lens on it. And yet, like Republicans and Democrats have a very hard time seeing the problem, describing the problem in the same way. So like, what's going on? Why, why are our ideas not just plowing right through Congress? <laughs> so, uh, that's why we invited you here, <laughs> among many reasons, I should say. Yeah, this is maybe why I went into, <laughs> into politics instead of sticking with economics. But uh, <laughs> so this is, this is probably one of the biggest challenges that we have in, in, uh, in the Congress in, from a policymaking perspective is how you, how you translate the good ideas and how you implement into a policy. And, and this is where 
it's, it's hard to, to tell the person with the great idea that as good as your idea may be, Ted, that Michael also has some good ideas here. And just maybe <laughs> if we take your two good ideas and we mix them up a little bit, you might have to shave some of your stuff off and he might get more than you think he should. But at the outcome, we've either built a better product, a better idea, or perhaps, and you're probably thinking, well, you shaved off the part that was really important, and so it's not as good an idea. But what it is is an idea that has gained enough support that we can now actually implement it, that we can actually pass it into law. And it is, it is a process that we call compromise. And it's something that, unfortunately, is being viewed by many as a negative part of a process. That somehow or other, if you have to shave something off and you get something a little bit more than, I, than we both think you should get, that you have, you've had to stand down on your principles. I think it comes down to an acknowledgment that maybe, just maybe, I don't have a monopoly on all of the good ideas and that you too can have some, some good ideas and together we can, we can build support. So part of it is the melding of good ideas, but part of it is the political reality that all 100 of us in the Senate come from different places. And I'm not talking about geographically, but I'm talking about the backgrounds that we bring. I'm, I'm a, a born and raised Alaskan. I'm an outdoor person. I like to hunt and I like to fish. And I come from a resource extraction state, but I am a hiker. And I am a person who likes the solitude of the wild. I like to, to I'd, I'd much rather watch the birds than actually bring home the bird for dinner. But I, I bring that to, to my, my, my job, my responsibility, my representation. And so recognizing that my voice representing Alaskans is important, but also the, voice, the voices of those who are representing the people of Illinois. I, I, it's, Durbin is not right and I'm wrong, or I'm wrong and he's right. It's a recognition that we represent different people from different areas who need to have their voices heard. So how we allow those voices to be expressed and meld them into legislation is a messy process. It is not something that is formulaic. And maybe that's the problem in being able to explain it to those of you here who are focused on economics. It is. <laughs> 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 Sorry, but it's, it's hard. Okay, well, let me turn it back to you then. Uh, you're a founding member of the, the new Bipartisan Climate Caucus, mm -hmm. I, I think that's right, in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, which I think it's got the Noah's Ark feature, one Republican, one Democrat at a time. Yeah, or, two by, do we come onto the Ark two by two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally. Uh, and I know there's a lot to be worked out, but do you see the contours of bipartisanship around this issue? The fact that 
We and are. What would it look like? Well, Broad, the, broadly defined. The fact that we're establishing a a bipartisan climate caucus in the Senate is a step unto itself, and and I love the fact that that. You, you sit here saying, it's just so easy. We just know, we know what needs to be done so policymakers just do it. But you know where, I'm, where, where the Congress has been. It has been highly divided uh, along party lines. Um, there, we've, we got an administration that came in with a very, very uh, uh, closed door to even the discussion of climate and climate change and what that might mean. And so to, to even be using the words out loud for some of my colleagues is, is extraordinary. Now, I come from Alaska. I, I see it every day. So for, for us in Alaska, Climate change is not some theoretical exercise. It's not something that is, is discussed in the abstract. We see it as we're seeing the oceans warm, as we're seeing the sea ice recede, the impact to the, to the walrus hunter who has to, has to go 35 miles offshore instead of 12 miles offshore. We're seeing fish species that are, are moving from one region to another. We're seeing the, 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 the moose move because the browse has, has gone further north and that has shifted food patterns and food security. For many in Alaska, it is, it is very basic needs that are tied to understanding a land and a, and a water that is changing. And so, it's everything from communities that are in peril because of the erosion to their coastline and, and the need to, to evacuate a village, to move a village. We're in the process of that as we speak. Two weeks ago, we had the first... Who does it? Who does it? Yeah. Oh, oh. Right now, nobody. It's mm. a little bit of everybody and nobody owns it, mm. and yet, the, the, the community that I was just in, in in September, moving nine miles from from the coastal fringe up to higher ground, um, they're they're halfway moved now. But it's been a process that has been it's been 17 years in the making. My very first legislation that got signed into law was a conveyance that allowed this village to be able to move to another area and to, to put their area into to refuge. Hmm. So I've been working on this for a long time, but it's expensive to move a village in Alaska. And these are communities that are 350 people. Some would say that these 350 people just need to move to the city and be done with it. But when you appreciate that these are people who have lived in this place, in this region, for thousands of years, for whom the identity to the land is everything. The idea that we would just say, you're on your own, is not where I'm going to be. I'm going to be there to work with them. So we work with the military to utilize uh, this as a training hmm. opportunity for them to help uh, build a landing barge. We, we, we are working with the federal government, the state government, the tribal governments, but it is hard. So I think a fascinating part of that is 
and I didn't know as much about the Alaska part, but if you look on, along the Atlantic coast with uh, sea level rise, mm -hmm. uh, I s suspect that someday, not too distant in the future, there's going to have to be like super painful conversations about, well, we're going to protect that one, but we're not going to protect that one. Uh, and so Alaska, I guess, is really on the leading edge here. We're in the front lines. Yeah. And you know, you're starting to see that in other parts of the country where basically it's not, it's not government coming in and saying, that's good, that's bad. It's the insurance companies. Yeah. They're, they're looking at it and saying, you know what? You want to you wanna have that nice, that nice house sitting there on the beach there in North Carolina where we've seen series after series of, of severe storms or hurricanes smacking you. Um, Insurance isn't going to be available yeah. to you, and so you know you, you think about you think about those types of of, uh, of forces that come at you, but but Alaska definitely is is at the the, the, the tip of the, the spear uh, in in many ways. And could you and talk a little bit like so yeah, you you have to get elected every six years in Alaska? You uh, seem to be very good at doing that, and so there's. These forces, climate change is happening. Uh, it's affecting people's lives, and then, as you said, it's like a resource-based economy. Uh, how do you find some space in between those two views? Because in many ways, that's kind of like what's going on in the whole country. Yep. But again, Alaska is kind yep. of at the yep. leading edge of it. Yeah, we're, we're we're kind of this little microcosm here. It'd be easier if you just had one half of it. That's the beauty of, of <laughs> representing an extraordinary place like Alaska. And I, I'm challenged every day, and I love that. I love that part of it because it is hard and it is a challenge and it's how we find this balance and that balance is 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 so important. So, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting, but can I layer one more thing over okay, your go answer? Ahead, yeah. Yeah, uh, my uncle-in-law was a former U.S. Senator from Arkansas and he had on his desk facing out to a sign when people came into his office which is Arkansas comes first. So in addition to describing how you're going to uh, navigate these two forces inside Alaska, can you also talk about how you balance that against whatever the national interests are? So, I should get I should get that. We should give you about twenty minutes to answer. Well, that. but I should get that sign for my desk yeah. too. Um, although I think people know that I, I feel pretty strongly about that. We we are a state. We're seven hundred twenty thousand people. When we came into the union, um, just shy of sixty years ago. Uh, it was made very clear. Look, you're never going to have enough people to support yourself from a from a t from a tax-based perspective. It's your resources that will sustain you, and that is the story. That was the story at statehood. That is a story that continues today. Believe it or not, we are a state where 85% of our state's budget comes from one place. 85% of our state's budget comes from oil. So when the price of oil is down, when production is down. What happens to our state in terms of, of the, the treasury? How do we pay for public safety, roads, and, and the like? Um, so if we want to be that state that has resources to help, whether it is moving villages, whether it is getting our state off of, off of diesel, now think about that. You think about Alaska and you think, okay, what I know about it is you got, you got oil up on the north, but you, you, you've got this $65 billion in the bank as part of your permanent fund, um, so it must be a pretty nice place. And oh, by the way, I also heard that you give everybody an annual dividend from that. That's all true, but what we, 
But what we, what we don't have then is, is, is communities that um, are connected by grid. So we, we, we literally don't have a road grid. We've got a highway that goes from, from Seward to, to Fairbanks and then down, and we don't have electric grid, so to speak. We've got one rail belt line, and after that, everybody's on their own. And think about what that means when everybody's on their own. In southeast, where it's a rainforest, you've got hydro, which is your energy, but you're limited within your ability to, to, to provide for transmission lines. So you've got all these islanded um, energy systems. And the rest of the state, you just are not connected. So no road, no uh, electric. Let me give you a little factoid here. Over 80% of the communities in the state of Alaska are not connected by a road. Think what that means. How do you get stuff? How do you get your food? How do you get your building materials? How do you move around? It's crazy expensive. And then you put on that the fact that in so many of these communities, they continue to be powered by diesel generation. And so you say, oh, well, you get your diesel from your, the North Slope. Well, we don't. We send that down a pipeline. We send that down south to be refined. Then they send it back to us. And then we have to put it on a barge or an airplane to get to us. So you get out to the village on the Yukon River, and you're paying 8 9 $10 a gallon to keep warm in a cold place. So what we're trying to do, necessity is the mother of invention. And we got a lot of mothers inventing extraordinary things. Because we have to, because we are so high cost in a cold place where you need to keep warm. And so we're pioneering with microgrids. We are, we are doing more in Alaska because we have to. And we're doing it with a little bit of ingenuity maybe a couple wind turbines, bring in some solar panels, get a little river turbine going, uh, energy storage by literally Chevy Volt batteries that are stacked up on Costco racks. But we've got, we've got imagination that is going on that is being viewed not only by the experts in our national labs around the country, but people around the world that are looking to Alaska. Because for us, we're going to have to figure out how we reduce our emissions kind of on our own. Because it's not like we can, we can, we can deal it, with it through the utilities, because it's really that's limited in terms of its scope. So we're doing a lot of pioneering that people don't know about. We're OK with that. We'll share with you when, when, uh, when you're ready. But, uh, but you ask about, about the balance and how we balance Alaska's interest with the national interest. And I, I, get it, I take it back to, in order for us to be able to make this transition to, to clean energy, we, we've got to have, we have to have the resources to be able to fund it. Because we know we're not going to be getting that much from, from the federal government to assist. Um, because again, we're small scale. We're small. We're small in the mm. total scheme of things. So how we balance that continues to be a challenge. But how we push those who are accessing these these fossil resources 
to do it in a, in a manner that is not only more clean, um, but really reducing that overall environmental footprint. We've got, to, we've got to push to make sure that that is a significant part of the equation as well. Terrific. Now, I, you know this better than I do, but of course, uh, carbon pricing does create all kinds of new revenues that can help grease the wheels. Uh, but that's one piece of the puzzle, I understand. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, now, my 13-year-old daughter would be very upset if I didn't ask the following question. Uh, she is, I think, I think it's starting to melt away slowly, but still it is true that she's 100% convinced uh, that boys, certainly myself and certainly our son, are an inferior species. Uh, and there's 25 <laughs> women in the U.S. Senate. <laughs> not 100. Not 100. Yes. Not even 50. <laughs> right, not even 50. So how would the Senate be different if there were more women, and what should men learn from women? And well. And, and it's then, totally this, unfair that you're asking student. this yeah. towards the end yeah. because we could have taken up the whole conversation talking about <laughs> it. Um, I, I am a firm believer that uh, women, by their very nature, um, bring a level of, of collaboration that I think is important to any process. And uh, I am a big advocate to try to encourage more women in all levels of, of, of public policy. And we, we're, we're, we're kind of high-fiving ourselves that we've gotten to, to 25. When I first came, uh, we were at 11. So we have made some, some progress. But I, I find it just astonishing that when we look to other countries in terms of their governance and their structure, we're telling them, you need to make sure that you've got uh, basically a 50-50 split in, in, in your form of government with women to men, and yet we have been just not looking at ourselves in terms of, of how women are, are, are engaged in the policy. So I, I, I will share with you that the women do things um, uh, not in a monolithic manner. It's not like, okay, because we're a woman, a woman, we all vote the same way on this. That's crazy. But what we do try to do that I think is healthy is try to build those personal relationships. So about every six weeks, the women of the Senate get together. Somebody agrees to host. Um, sometimes uh, it'll be at, at um, the member's house there in D.C., or if they don't have a very very big house, enough for, for 15 or 20 of us. Uh, you know, we'll do it in, a, in somebody's office or, or in a restaurant. And we gather together, and there's three rules. No staff, no notes, no leaks. We're just there to share one another's company. And sometimes it's just having a glass of wine and complaining, whining about you know, who's running the show, and my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this. And other times, we talk about our kids, um, our family relationships, some of the stresses of the job. And other times, we talk about some very significant issues of the day and, and what we might be able to do to help influence that outcome. But what, what we try to do is remind one another that uh, we're in positions of, of great responsibility. And, and that responsibility 
is, is challenging and hard, and that even though we may be Republicans and Democrats and from different parts of the country, uh, we, we can share in some of the burdens and support one another. And, and so when we do have those splits and those differences, we respect where the other is coming from. And you think men are less good at that? I don't know that they're less good at that, but I'll tell you. I'll use my example of, of fishing. I love to fish. And uh, as a consequence, I, I get invited to, to go fishing a fair amount. And when I am in a fishing boat with four gentlemen, I can guarantee you they've got a list of, of initiatives that they want to make sure that we've had an opportunity to discuss. It's, so they've, they've done their business. I get in a fishing boat with women, four other women, and we will we'll talk about everything under the sun. And then as we're, we're going into the dock, it's like, oh, hey, you know, I do need to let you know. I really need your help on, on this initiative that you work in. So can you look at that legislation? I'm like, yeah, got to check the box. And, but we, we let ourselves have a, have a life. Um, I'm sure that men do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a secret, I guess. Um, I don't know. Ask your daughter. Yes. Uh, is there particular advice you'd offer to the students here who might want to become uh, interpolitics, women in particular? So, Sorry. men or women, uh, I'm always asked, well, is there some background that I should have? Should I be studying political science? Um, what should I be focusing on? And I enjoy, enjoy your, your undergraduate, your, your, most people don't enjoy their graduate career, but, um, but, but stay focused but on But they learn it. a lot. They learn a lot. Yeah, they get great value here at the University of Chicago <laughs> too, so. But focus on your, on your passion, on what drives you and, and where you feel very challenged. Um, and, and that will set you up for as much as anything. So you don't need to have that degree necessarily in, in one certain thing, but you need to be passionate about some things. And that passion will allow you to achieve levels of leadership that others then look to and say, you know, you would be a good person to serve in the legislature. You would be a good person to serve at that council level. But the best advice that I can give is do not wait until it's convenient. Because there will never be a time in your life where it will be convenient to be a public servant. There will always be something. You know, I've got to focus on my education. I have to focus on my family. I have to focus on my retirement. I have to focus on making more money, or I have to focus on relaxing more. There will never be a perfect time. And so when you're waiting for the perfect time, it's not going to happen. And so you have to, to know that you are ready to serve, oftentimes without a great deal of of um, public accolades coming your way, and you're good with that because 
you want to give back at a level. So don't wait for the perfect time. Excellent. Now, I would be remiss not to point out that the president of our country is speaking, I think maybe right now, three miles away from here. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> maybe it's four miles. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, if you turn on TV, he seems to be uh, very effective at remaining on the TV. Uh, I wondered if you could just talk briefly, has he changed the Republican Party? Is it in an enduring way? Enduring or endearing? <laughs> you know, I am going to let you answer that however yeah. you want. <laughs> I'm sure people will be interested in both. So I, I look at the time, time and place that we are at right now, and I don't like it. Um, I don't like that, um, that we are as politically polarized as we are. I don't think that that's good for the country. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I sense that. Um, I don't like that more and more people who are not policymakers or politicians are identifying themselves as, you know, my name is Karen and I'm a Republican. Or, no, my name is Michael, and I'm a Democrat. When did we get to that point? I mean, if you're, if you're in, in politics, you know that that's an identifier that comes. But that we are lining ourselves up this way. I, I, don't, I don't like that part of, of, of how we have become divided. And I particularly don't like the way we're talking to one another and about one another. And, and, and this is where I have, uh, we have a president that, in my view, on some of the policies that, that he has advanced, they've been very important to my state. And, and we have seen some direct benefit. Uh, but I, I have to challenge him on, on some of the ways in which he communicates in ways that I think are counterproductive to, to debate, to respect, and to civility. And so this is challenging for me right now. Um, and I think it's challenging for all of us when, when we have a, a leader, a president, that um, is operating in what some would say is a very unorthodox. Um, I think he, he, he likes the fact that he's unorthodox. And I think that you can challenge the status quo. I think you can shake things up. But I think that there are ways that you do it in, that are respectful and civil. And I know I sound a little bit like somebody's mother in saying that, um, but I, I, I feel that we are becoming less civil as a society, and I think that leadership in setting the tone really matters. And I think that that has impacted our party right now. Okay, uh, so we have a bunch of questions, but I can't resist asking you one more question. Okay. Uh, three things that most people here have probably never been to Alaska. What are the three things people should do when they come? Oh, well, 
I understand probably you got 300, but you have to choose three. Three things that they should do. First, you should know that wherever it is that you go in Alaska, do not assume that you have now seen the state of Alaska. All right? <laughs> a little bit of a lesson here. Bigger than Texas, right? Two and a half times bigger than Texas, <laughs> all right? One-fifth the size of the United States of America. So when you superimpose Alaska over the lower 48, we go from, from Florida to California, from, from, the, from the Gulf up to the Canadian border. So that would be like you saying, well, I, I went to Alaska, but I really only went to Minneapolis. <clears throat> and then I understand California. You don't, OK? So in fairness, most Alaskans have never been to most parts of this state. So I want you, here's the second thing you need to know. Every one of you carries a map of Alaska with you. I do this with all the, the elementary students. So you just take your hand and you kind of hold it up like this. This is the state of Alaska. Here's the southeastern panhandle. Here's Anchorage. Here's the Aleutian chain. Here's the north slope up here. And your wrist is Canada, OK? That's Alaska. So if you want to know where to go to fish, this is where you want to go to fish. This is too expensive to get out to. These are the oil fields up here. This is where we mine for gold. This is where all the population is. This is your electric grid and your road system right there. Everything else is wide open space. So that's two things you need to know. Don't assume that you know where you're going and always carry your map with you. And, and I think. Not always carry a whistle? Oh, yeah. We were talking about the whistle. So, in addition to great land, great people, we also have extraordinary wildlife. And Michael and I were talking earlier. Um, they went on a trip. Should I tell your story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. They, they, they go on a trip to Alaska, and they go to REI, go to the outfitter to get all ready, and, and they sell them whistles. And so they're telling everybody, you know, we're, we're ready to go out on our hiking adventure. We got this, that, and the other thing, and we got the whistle. And it's like, yeah because that's how we know the difference between a local and a tourist. If a tourist gets et by a bear, the whistle is in the, in the bear scat. So uh, he says, true story, true story. But is that the third thing? That's, I, I think just know that uh, Alaska is uh, an extraordinary place where think about this. I mentioned that we're a state that has been built on our, on our resource. Um, what, what, what God, Mother Nature, has, has provided us. And I think sometimes we get accused unfairly of, of just wanting to rape, pillage, and ruin our own state. Far, 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 far from that. We are the ultimate conservationists. We are the ultimate. We want to live in this place because we want to go hiking every day, or fishing, or skiing, or backpacking, or, or just being out in this extraordinary land and on these extraordinary waters. There is no, there is no, no desire to, to spoil the environment for the sake of, of a resource. And so how we achieve that balance is the ultimate tension, the ultimate tension. And um, we think that we're doing a pretty good job, but we keep on it every day. Okay, so we have some questions okay. from the audience. Uh, Andrew Yang has proposed uh, universal basic income. Alaska has it. Yeah. What should Andrew Yang and Democratic voters learn from Alaska's experiences? 
And most people might not actually know about it. Right. So, person, so. so let me share with you. I mentioned yeah. um, a little bit ago that uh, in Alaska, we have taken our, our oil wealth, um, invested it, um, invested it in, in the market. Uh, we generate returns on that. Our permanent fund itself is about a $65 billion fund, but spun off from that on an annual basis are dividends that are based on the rate of return over a five-year average uh, as a payout to Alaskans. So for instance, this year, the, the average dividend was $1,600. And that goes to every man, woman, and child who is a resident uh, of the state. Um, I can tell you that that is um, uh, that's one month of, of home heating fuel um, in the town that I went to high school in, in, in Fairbanks. If, you're, if you've got a, uh, a group in a family of six kids, so you have a little bit bigger house, um, that permanent fund dividend goes to help offset uh, for many, many families, some basic needs because the cost of living is as high as it is there. If I were to, to provide uh, advice on that, um, one thing that I will tell you is that when you do provide for that dividend, as we have seen in Alaska, um, there is a, uh, how do I want to say this? The demand is that every year, I'm going to be getting more than I got last year. And I look at the dividend and say, this, this, this is an extraordinary way of sharing common wealth throughout a, a state. But it's not something that you should take for granted. Oil is a finite resource. Um, more and more people are coming to our state. We want more. We want broadband throughout the entire state. We want to have uh, a physics teacher up in Utkiavik. We want to have the ability for basic services. And, and so this, this desire for more and more every year is something that I think is a, is a human tendency. So I think he's going to have to figure out how he's going to deal with that right. part of it. Um, what should the Department of Interior do about methane leaks from natural gas drilling on federal land? Well, this is an issue. And, and you know, when you think about it from the business perspective, if you are, if you are the owner of, you're the operator of the, the pipeline or, or the owner of the resource, Every, every bit of that that is leaked out is money escaping into the air. So it only makes sense that you would want to do everything that you can to reduce and or eliminate that. So pipeline modernization is something that, in my view, we all should be supporting because those who say, well, we don't need any more pipelines and, and we don't we don't want this permit to go through for, uh, for an upgrade because we don't like the resource itself, that resource is going to continue to be moving through, but it's going to be moving through less efficiently and with greater environmental impact. So at a bare minimum, can we at least agree that, that we need to, to provide for upgrades to, to that resource? Um, the, the issue of, of Methane leaks is one 
the flaring aspect of, of what we do. We know that the releases that we see from, from, uh, from flaring um, on our natural gas fields is something that, again, is it in the best interest of the owner-operator to, to be reducing that? Absolutely. And, and I think that we can do more. Um, now, this is inside academia one, but I suspect okay. you know about it. Uh, can you comment on the recent defunding of the University of Alaska Fairbanks? Uh, whoever wrote this notes that uh, Alaska Fairbanks is a deeply important university to U.S. scientific research, uh, particularly around Arctic studies, uh, and faculty are already applying for jobs and dispersing. So yeah. I, I don't actually know very much about this, but I well, suspect you do. Yeah, and I appreciate whoever, whoever offered that up. Uh, I mentioned that, um, that we're seeing a lower price of oil, lower production, which has, if you're a state that is 85% of your state's budget comes from oil, you're going to see an impact to your budget. Uh, so we have a governor who came into office um, last November, and he had made a, a, a pledge and a commitment that he was going to, to not only keep the full amount of the dividend, but also um, make sure that anything that was less uh, than a full dividend was rebated to, to people while at the same time balancing the budget. So that's a really hard dynamic. So when he came out with his budget, the University of Alaska system was hit with a 40% reduction in one year. Think about what that would mean to you here in the University of Chicago if you're told that next year you've got a 40% reduction. It was mind-blowing, and in my view, um, it, was, it was something that could not, could, not, uh, could not move forward. Long story short, uh, the governor did pull back uh, on much of this. He's made an arrangement with the University Board of Regents to reduce the budget. Uh, it'll be a 23% reduction over three years, but still an extraordinary hit to our university. We have... Um, we have a university system that, not surprisingly, has developed a level of expertise when it comes to the Arctic. Should not be a surprise to anyone because we are the, the university that comes from a state that is in the Arctic. And so whether it is the, the Institute of Geophysics, um, uh, all of the, the Arctic efforts that are underway, this is not only value to Alaska, but to the country as we're, as we're trying to better understand these, these impacts uh, on, our, on our broader climate. It is critically important to all of the other Arctic nations as we are sharing our, 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 our learned research about what we're seeing and when it's coming and how it's presenting itself. So I am a big advocate for ensuring that um, our university system remains strong and is resourced. So I appreciate the question for whomever presented. Well, uh, obviously, there's nothing more important to spend money on than universities. There you have it. No, it's not spending money on universities. You're spending money on these bright minds that you are then putting out into meant. an extraordinary yes. economy. <laughs> Um, okay, so here's a good question to end with. Uh, do you have a vision of a global climate initiative uh, that could somehow encourage India and China and today's developing countries to participate? 
since it is global climate change and emissions from there do the same thing as uh, emissions from Chicago? For those who say, well, we can't do anything uh, policy-wise on climate change until India and China step up, that's, that's a defeatist attitude in my view. The way that you get China and India to participate is you show that leadership. And you show the leadership through the efforts that you're doing to reduce emissions. And the United States does have a good story to tell here in terms of what we have done with our air quality, what we have done to reduce our emissions. But you don't just sit back and say, OK, we did our thing. Now it's your turn to do your thing. And then we'll step up after that. No, no, no. This has got to be everybody working together and then sharing it. I know that sometimes we, we say, well, we're going to develop ours here and um, keep all the best ideas here. I, I understand full well how we want to lead, but we can lead in different areas. I have a strategic energy initiative that we've just launched in the Energy Committee that is saying, OK, look, those, those countries that want the clean energy source that comes from advanced nuclear, why shouldn't we be using our expertise in this area to help? Why shouldn't we be able to compete against these state-owned entities from Russia and China that right now are, 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 are the participants in this area um, through, our, through the XM, uh, Export Import Bank? Why can't we be helping to facilitate at, a, at another level and in another space. So it's the technologies, it's the leadership. Um, it, is, it, is, it is not only demonstrating through action, but then partnering and, 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 and making those commitments. I'm, I'm on a panel. I was asked to be part of the, the International Energy Association, IEA's Global Urgency Energy Efficiency Committee. It's a long title. They could be more. They could be more efficient if they figured it out. Yeah. But it is it is an international group that is focused specifically to efficiency. And, you know, you think about it. What is what is sexy and interesting about changing out your light bulbs? Well, not really. It's not nearly as cool as talking about something that's going on with advanced nuclear or what we're doing uh, with energy storage and, and, and carbon capture utilization. But it's such low-hanging fruit. And we had, been, we had been going like this in terms of the advances that we've made on energy efficiency. And now we've started to stall out. Why have we started to stall out? Well, because we got kind of comfortable in our spaces again. So the, you ask for, a, for a, a vision. We need to be leading in this space. The rest of the world expects us to lead in this space. We have enjoyed the, the benefits of a strong economy because we, we, we led with our, with our energy and our innovation. Let's, let's work with the rest of the world to share just that. Thank you very much, Senator Murkowski. You're welcome here anytime. Thanks. I'll come back. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu.